We got a handout in the back, so it's just a printout from the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're just going to cover a brief list for We're not going to go into detail, but just do a kind of a brief overview. Um, remember last week, we finished up the introduction of the book, where Paul Tripp makes this claim that uh, every passage of Scripture tells me something about every area of my life. Scripture may not specifically address your situation, your time of life, whatever it is, but everything in Scripture addresses everything in our life. Um, he went through Second uh, Timothy 3.16. He talked about this process we go through with Scripture. Scripture uh, provides teaching, provides a standard for our lives. It provides reproof. So we compare ourselves to this standard the Scripture provides. It's uh, like a mirror. It's like a measuring stick we compare ourselves against. We go through a correction process. We compare ourselves to this standard and we correct ourselves, this constant process, this comparison correction process to close that gap between what Scripture says and how we're living our lives. And then we're training is that putting those standards into practice in our lives. So this constant process we go through, he describes in the Second Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3.16. He talks about the, uh, the gap at the end of that chapter, this gap between our, our functional theology and our confessional theology, what we, how we actually live our lives and what Scripture says, what we should believe. And we started digging into the first couple of chapters that look at the doctrine of Scripture. So this morning we're going to finish up talking about the... Uh, the doctrine of Scripture, looking very briefly at the confession of faith, what it says, and you probably noticed in that first chapter he talked about Scripture. He's really summarizing the confession of faith. We're going to look briefly at that. We're going to dig more into the uh, the next chapter, which looks at how Scripture plays a role in our everyday lives, how it should function in our lives. And I thought that chapter was really worth the price of the book, if you, if you got a head chance to get through that chapter. Um, it's probably a chapter that, that I and, and many of you should probably read you know, once a month or so, just to remind ourselves what this treasures do we have in Scripture? And if we have time at the end, I want to finish up by looking at the gap. So where is the gap in our lives uh, between what we say about the, what we believe about the Bible and how we actually live our lives? Where is that gap between our confessional theology about the Bible and how we live on a day-to-day basis? So that's our goal for this morning in the next 40 minutes or so. I want to start by reading just a, a brief article I found uh, this week. Like I mentioned last week, when you're teaching a class like this, you see all kinds of stuff that relate to what you're talking about. So this is an article I found online. Um, anybody read, uh, know who Tim Shollies is? He's a Canadian blogger, and I don't usually read his articles, but he has a bunch of links usually I check out. So he had one about the, about the Bible published by a uh, reformed pastor in Australia who, who titles his article, What's the Bible? He says, to us, it's one of the most ordinary features of our homes. Go into a typical Christian household and you'll find a Bible, or more likely, several Bibles. To us, the Bible is so common that we sometimes have a dozen or more copies around the place. There could be a Bible by our bed, a few near the kitchen table, one that is slowly discoloring on the backseat of our car, plus a collection of older Bibles on a shelf in the basement. Isn't that true? How many folks have 10, 15, 20, 25, I, mean, I can't even begin to count how many Bibles are around my house. I don't know why, why I buy so many Bibles. I was thinking maybe it's this, uh, this sort of consumerist mentality we have in our country. I mean, they're always putting new Bibles out for us to buy anyways, right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of making all these new study Bibles. But there's this idea that in the back of my mind sometimes that, uh, you know, I just need this new Bible. This can take my Bible readings to a whole new level, right? This is what I need to really 
kickstart my Bible study and Bible reading. It's like when you're trying to get in shape. You're buying all these new, this new fitness equipment. This is going to be the key to me getting in shape. So I think it's kind of the back of my mind sometimes, this new study Bible is like, this is really the Bible I need to get my act together and start reading the Bible consistently. And it you know, never works, but uh, I keep trying. But um, I think all of us kind of settle on that Bible that we like, the Bible we like to read. I found mine recently. It's a, it's a, it's a journaling Bible from the ESV. It's got a single column. It's got a space on the side with lines to write notes and stuff. That's my new favorite Bible. But has anybody seen the... Uh, I think they're called scripture journals. They're like individual books of the Bible in their own book. And they have on one side you have the, the text of scripture, and the other side you have a, it's a blank page with lines on it to write notes. I mean, those are, those are awesome, I think. I really love those. But it's really true. We have so many Bibles in our homes. It's, it's amazing how many Bibles we have around. He says, The Bible is so common that we might use it to decorate our home, and so common that we might throw out old copies, which somehow always feels wrong. What do you do with old Bibles? Is there a procedure for, it feels sort of sacrilegious, right? But I get the point sometimes where you just can't use them anymore. He says, okay, so what is this book called the Bible? In truth, it is many things. The Bible is a collection of books, 66 books to be precise, written by some 30 or more different authors, composed originally in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Yet it is one book. The The name Bible actually means books. Yet, it is one book. The word Bible has become synonymous with truth or authority. You can go to, you can go to Amazon and find the, the skincare Bible, the baking Bible, the nutrition Bible, or the yoga Bible, and countless other examples. But of course, there's no Bible but one, and the scripture about which Jesus once said, your word, O God, is truth. The Bible's literature, he talks about different kinds of literature, the poetry, the prose, the stories, the narratives, the, uh, the, the influence of the Bible on art and music and literature and culture. Uh, it's literature, but it's more than that. It's Holy Scripture. The Bible's really old. It talks about, uh, you know, Moses being the author of, of, old, of the Pentateuch, well, 1500 B.C., recording stuff that happened way before then. The Bible is the most printed book in the world, the most thoroughly studied, the most commonly stolen, the most widely translated, and the most vigorously debated book in the world. In the last 40 years alone, eight new major Bible versions have been published in English and have sold well in excess of 100 million copies. The Bible is currently available in 2,100 different languages. Thousands of people have given their lives to preserve and promote the Bible. He talks about, for example, William Tyndale translated the Bible in the, in the, uh, the early 1500s and, and cost him his life. Opening the Bible and flipping through the, its pages might feel natural to us, yet we forget just how explosive this book really is. Listen to what the Lord says about his word in Jeremiah twenty-three twenty-nine: Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? That's our scripture reading for this morning in Jeremiah. So when I read this morning, you'll at least be familiar with one verse in there. God's word is like a fire, like a hammer. It has a mighty power of its own. There's a reason that it has been at the heart of so much controversy, so much worship, so much delight, and so many changed lives. This ancient book is God's living word. He uses this word to accomplish his work among his people. Yes, what is this book that we call the Bible? The Bible contains the very mind of God, the true state of mankind, the way of salvation, and the happiness of believers. It is food to nurture and comfort to cheer. It is a traveler's map 
the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. The Bible is a storehouse of treasure and a river of life. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts binding, its history is true, its wisdom unchangeable. This book should rule the heart, fill the mind, and guide the feet. The take-home is that for Christians, the Bible is enough. It is understandable, it is powerful, and it is essential, which leaves you and me with a crucial question. Do we still read the Bible so we might hear the living Word of God? That's really a summary of what Paul Tripp talks about in these two chapters here, the, the importance of the Bible and the role it should play in our lives. So we talked last week briefly, we jumped into this first chapter on the doctrine of Scripture, and we talked about how he really just summarizes the Westminster Confession of Faith. So I just want to very briefly talk about the Confession of Faith here. We talked about last week about general revelation. God reveals himself in nature and the beautiful works of creation um, and providence. Reveals himself in our own hearts. Our conscience bears witness that there is a God. Um, I mean, how can we not live in the Pacific Northwest and see the beauty of God? I mean, driving in this morning at 220th, you can see the the dusting of snow on the Olympics, and if you drive the other way, you can see the Cascades. And I mean, what what glorious beauty! We have a, uh, a tree just outside the guest room in our house, and there's a there's a robin who's been preparing a nest last uh, last week or two, and is now sitting on her nest. And this is what, what amazing creation God has given us. Just it's just amazing, mind boggling, right? But nevertheless, all these. You know, fabulous works God's provided for us don't give us what we need to know in order to be saved, which means God gave us a scripture. A scripture is necessary, but scripture is also sufficient. It's all we need to know how to be saved. Um, God inspired 66 books, right? The whole Bible is inspired. I was reminded of this this week because I began reading in my Bible reading the book of Leviticus. Um, how many people... Your favorite book of the Bible is Leviticus. No one. Okay. Uh, it's funny because I'm reading a kind of a theology, uh, Old Testament theology book that goes along with it, and it never fails. Reading about Leviticus, someone says, you know, this book is horrible to read. People hate it. It's confusing. It's complex. It's, you know, it, it never fails. And it's true. There was, a, I think it was Spurgeon or somebody had a quote that uh, it would be, it would be more tragic to lose a single page of Leviticus than all the works of Shakespeare. You think to yourself, has you really read Leviticus and Shakespeare? Uh, some pages of Leviticus might not be too tragic, right? But then you think about Leviticus, what it means, what it meant to the life of the Israelites. And this was probably the book they used you know, on a daily basis more than any other because it guided their whole life. You know, the priests that told them how to perform the sacrifices, they talked to people about their relationships with, uh, with God and with, with others and and uh, it told them how to live with a holy God in their midst. If they wanted God to stay there and if they wanted to stay alive, they needed to follow Leviticus. This is a you know, crucial book on a day-to-day basis. Then you think about the New Testament, how it points to Christ, how Leviticus points to Christ, the whole sacrificial system that's fulfilled in Christ. Leviticus is so critically important to that, the Day of Atonement, all that stuff. And then you think about uh, when Jesus summarizes the law, what does he say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Where does that come from? It comes from Leviticus chapter 19. 
love your neighbor as yourself, is in Leviticus, this, this book that is so horrible, hard to read. So, I mean, even Leviticus, the most challenging book of the Bible, is so critically important to our faith. So, I mean, God has inspired all 66 books, and, uh, and we, can, we can profit from reading every single one of them, even the ones that uh, are sometimes quite a challenge here. Um, we could talk more about this. Um, we talk about the books that are in the Bible and the books that are outside the Bible. Uh, the Confession of Faith mentions the Apocrypha. We're not going to talk about that, but uh, there's certainly other books that uh, all kinds of liberal scholars are promoting as being part of Scripture or should have been part of Scripture today. We could talk more about that hopefully sometime. In fact, I read a book uh, not too long ago about um, a fragment of a supposed gospel that was supposedly discovered in, uh, in Egypt that uh, talked about Jesus having a wife. You may have heard this probably 10 years ago. The Gospel of Jesus' Wife was in the news. It was an interesting book about that, how the whole thing was a fake, but liberal scholars just ate it up. They just loved this fact that that we may have a gospel fragment that talks about Jesus having a wife. You know how controversial that was. Um, The Scriptures are authority. Scripture is, uh, is, uh, is inspired by God. God is the author of it. Uh, he talks a, a couple parts in the confession here talk about the importance of the Holy Spirit. And this is, and Paul Tripp talks about this too. And I love this fifth paragraph in the confession of faith, probably my favorite, my favorite paragraph. They give all these examples, all these proofs for why Scripture is so valuable, why Scripture is the Word of God. The testimony of the church, the uh, the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, all these reasons why Scripture is the Word of God. But they say, nevertheless, our full persuasion assurance is based upon the Holy Spirit testifying in our hearts that this is the Word of God. The Scripture testifies to its own authority, but really, when you come right down to it, the real authority is the Spirit speaking in our hearts. And I was reminded of this recently because I, I told you I was reading about um, Benjamin Franklin for this documentary. I, I'm, I'm really odd. I cannot watch a movie or documentary unless I've read a book about it first. So there's a movie coming out. I cannot watch it unless I read the book first. So, so I had to read a documentary. I had to read a book on Benjamin Franklin before I saw a documentary. So as I said, he was raised in a Christian home. His father was a you know, strict Calvinist, was an elder church. Um, he, ra- he was raised reading the Bible and studying the Westminster Confession and, and uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And but he, he resisted all that. He, he had this weird, like I said, this fusion of Christian faith and, and uh, rationalism where there were things he couldn't believe in the Bible. And so near the end of his life, um, someone asked him, well, Benjamin Franklin, what do you believe about the Bible? And he'd been, I mean, it's amazing to see his life. His, his younger sister, Jane, was, uh, I mean, committed Christian. She lived a horrible life. She had, had, she had 12 kids and... Only one kid survived her. She buried 11 kids. But she was so committed to her faith. She was always corresponding with Benjamin Franklin, talking about the faith. He was good friends with George Whitfield. If you're familiar with Whitfield, he was the uh, kind of the Benjamin Franklin. And I mean the Benjamin Franklin. He was the, uh, no, he was the Billy Graham of his day, I was going to say. Billy Graham of his day. I mean, he would tour through colonies, and I mean, tens of thousands of people would come to hear Whitfield speak. And uh, Benjamin Franklin made lots of money off publishing Whitfield's uh, sermons and, and stuff and, and books and pamphlets. But uh, he had this relationship with Whitfield. Whitfield's always asking him, hey, you know, you need to deal with Christ here. And Franklin resisted. So at the end of his life, he summarizes what he believes about Scripture. I believe in God. I believe in the Creator. I believe in providence. I believe that uh, you know, folks who do, do good things will 
go to heaven, and folks who don't will, you know, probably suffer judgment. But as to Christ, I've never really thought about his divinity. So, I mean, the, the central, the critical thing in all scripture, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Benjamin Franklin, you know, gave that, gave that question to Heisman. Didn't want to deal with it. Um, so, uh, Paul Tripp talks about people who are fools. He could be presented with all this scripture evidence, to, the evidence of the divinity of Christ, but you know, you just give it, give it the hand wave. And that's how foolish that is. But us, who have all these benefits, who have the Spirit, um, how, do, how are we fools as well when we kind of give Scripture the Heisman? We, we neglect this doctrine. We neglect to read it. We neglect to deal with it. And we can be foolish too in the same way by not, uh, by not taking advantage of all that we have here. And finally, he talks about the, uh, the inward illumination of the Spirit necessary for saving understanding um, and Paul talks, at the end of this Doctrine of Scripture chapter, he talks about the, uh, you know, when you buy a book, when you buy this book, Paul Tripp doesn't come along with your book, right? And it would be nice if you got a mini Paul Tripp with the book. You could have like Paul Tripp on your shoulder maybe. So as you read, he could help you, you know, understand things that are confusing or say, you know, really pay attention to this, this section here. This is, I really you know, put a lot of thought into this, but you know, Paul Tripp doesn't do that. But the Spirit does. You know, the same Spirit who inspired the writings you know, lives inside of us. The Spirit of Christ lives inside of us to help us understand, to interpret, to, to live this Word. So what an amazing blessing we have. And that section made me think of a quote by Calvin. I had this written in my Bible. I used to have a, a speaking study Bible. I had a, a uh, Reformation study Bible from Ligonier years ago. And I wrote this quote in the front of my Bible. And this is Calvin commenting on... Uh, Romans 15, uh, 4, which uh, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And this is what Calvin said on that verse here. This notable passage shows us that the oracles of God contain nothing vain or unprofitable. At the same time also it instructs us that it is by the reading of the scriptures that we make progress in godliness and holiness of life. We ought, therefore, to strive to learn all that is delivered to us in the Scriptures. And this is the key line that really, that really struck me reading this for the first time. It would be an insult to the Holy Spirit to imagine that he had taught us anything which it is of no advantage to know. It would be an insult to the Holy Spirit to think that there's something in Scripture that we don't need to know. Now that, I, mean, that's, if I read that for the first time, I'm like, wow, I mean, that is, that is really powerful. So, don't insult the Holy Spirit by neglecting to read, to read the Word and, and you're seeking throughout your life to know everything that's in there. All right. I think we've wrapped up that first chapter. We're going to move on to the second chapter, which, I, like I said, I found to be super profitable. I, just, I love the way that, uh, that, that he describes so many things here. And, and um, he talks in this first chapter, about chapter 2, Scripture in Everyday Life. He says, you know, if, if we really believe this about the Word of God, and he, the first paragraph here, is, I just underline, if you really believe this, that God has written this, he's preserved it for you, shouldn't this scripture be the most valuable, the most treasured possession in your life? Um, he talks about all the implications that that should have for our life. Um, wouldn't it uh, have more influence over your decisions than your friends, Google, or the voices on Twitter? That one hits home for us today, doesn't it? Um, many of us have, it says on the next page, the second paragraph down, many of us have voices of influence in our lives that are functionally more authoritative than Scripture. 
So I'm going to hold that until the end after we discuss the rest of the chapter and, and think about where is this gap in our lives between what we believe, say we believe about Scripture and how we actually live on a day-to-day basis with Scripture. And where is that gap in our lives and what do we provide more functional authority to in our lives than, than the Word of God here? And uh, he has this really penetrating question at the top of page 43, the first uh, full sentence there. It says, if I could listen in on and watch a month of your life, what would I conclude about the place of God's word in your life? I said last week my goal was to make you feel bad for not reading scripture enough. So this is that, that penetrating question, right? If Paul Tripp could come and watch you for a month and, and see how scripture functioned in your life, um, what conclusions would he draw? So there's the, the question for the day. Well, I'm going to talk about these. Uh, he lists 10 ways that Scripture should function in our lives, 10 ways that Scripture should uh, play a, a place in our everyday lives. I want to go through these briefly, and then uh, we'll got a few minutes to talk about some of these. Um, if someone just, just start firing off, I'm going to f- throw these up on my, uh, my whiteboard today. So just read them off for me. Scripture should, Scripture saves. Points. Yeah, scripture points points away from us to God, right? Okay. Scripture teaches. That's a big one. Scripture teaches. Okay. Rescues. Okay. What's next? Warns. Good one. All right, what's next here? Protects. Okay. Should have four more. Encourages. Encourages, okay. Motivates. Okay. What was that? Confronts. Ooh, good one. That's the scripture as a mirror argument. One, two. Convicts. Oh, running out of room here. I'll put it down here. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. Um, do you think we need scripture in our lives then? If it has all these amazing features and functions in our lives, it saves, it points, it teaches, it rescues, it warns, protects, encourages, motivates, confronts, convicts, and guides. Wow. Do any of us need uh, to be saved? Do we need to be pointed away from ourselves towards God? Do we need to be taught, rescued? Do we need to be warned about the dangers of life, protected, encouraged? I thought this was a really... Like I said, a really, really interesting, important uh, section here. Um, are there any things, anything that he missed, do you think? I was thinking about this. Is there anything he missed that, that I would like to add? Uh, you probably haven't thought about it from this perspective like I have this week, but anything you would add to this list? I thought of a couple, and uh, there are probably maybe sub-points of some of these or combinations. I thought that... Uh, you know, this may be included kind of rescues or encourages, but um, this is taken from a G.I. Packer book I was looking at last week that I kind of read to you. But 
It's uh, Scripture serves as a lifeline. And when he talks about rescue, he's really sometimes talking about you know, rescuing from the penalties for the, for the consequences of our sin. But sometimes life just, just overwhelms us. We're like someone at sea, and we're just tossed about by the waves, and you know, the waves are crashing over us. And we just need, we need a lifeline. We need something to, to reassure us that, that we're safe. Um, I remember a time in my life, um, I said, I said last week my father died my senior year of high school. I left uh, you know, that next summer to go to the Naval Academy. And, um, and as you know, Rob and Catherine can attest, your, your first uh, year at the Academy is, is not a pleasant experience. So I was beginning of my first year at the Academy. We just started the academic year, and I found out my mom had a lump in her breast. So I was thinking, this is great. My father just died. My mom's got breast cancer. You know, life cannot get any worse at this point. I'm 3,000 miles from home. I'm, I'm just, you know, things are really rough here. And one of the upperclassmen, um, he took me under his wing. And every day for a few weeks, we would meet very early in the morning and read a psalm together and discuss it and pray over it. And that was such a, that was like the lifeline I needed at that point in my life. That was such an encouragement to me. And thankfully, it wasn't, uh, it was a benign tumor and, and she is still alive today. But uh, that was such a horrible experience going through that. And uh, Scripture was such a, I'm not, a, I don't, Psalms aren't my favorite portion of Scripture. The poetry isn't, doesn't really work with me. But uh, at that time in my life, wow, the Psalms were so powerful and effective in my life. So that was one of my thought of Scripture as a, uh, as a lifeline. We just need something to hold on to when the, like, the waves of life are crashing over you. And then uh, I thought of this other example, and this probably falls under teaches. But uh, maybe a, a more specific point is that uh, Scripture, this is borrowing from Calvin again, scripture, um, scripture corrects our vision. Corrects our vision. And I, I, th- I was thinking over and over this idea that Calvin talks about of Scripture being our spectacles. You know, we put the spectacles of Scripture on and we see things the way that they are supposed to be seen. And I found this, uh, this quote comes from the Institute. So this is a Calvin day, all kinds of Calvin quotes. So. I mean, what an awesome class talking about Calvin here. This is from the Institutes. He says, uh, Just as old or bleary-eyed men and those with weak vision, if you thrust before them a most beautiful volume, even if they recognize it to be some sort of writing, yet can scarcely construe the two words, but with the aid of spectacles, will begin to read distinctly. So Scripture, gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds, having dispersed our dullness, clearly shows us the true God. So some of you are old enough like I am where you need, uh, you need reading glasses, or some of you wear glasses all the time, but this is a vision of the, you know, of we, we put these spectacles on. We can see the true God revealed to us in Scripture. It's, it's just an amazing view. So I, th- I probably, probably falls under teaching, maybe, but uh, you know, Scripture is constantly correcting our vision they give us a true perspective, a true picture of what, uh, of what Scripture teaches. Um, I don't want to go through all these in detail. We could go through all these a lot. Just to mention a few briefly. And um, Does anybody have any, uh, any experience or any comments to make on any of these? Yeah, Brett. What strikes me is that uh, non-Christian thinking, whether false religion or the world of unbelief, they are also worried about they concern themselves with all these aspects of life, and they, they, they and they speak to it without scripture. Yeah. Like 
have scripture to influence and control our thinking, that nature abhors a vacuum. And the unbelief will come in and tell us what we need to be rescued from, how to be rescued. Or, you know, unbelief will tell us, will, will give us assurances and try to give us peace of mind apart from Christ if we're not careful. You, you, you will look for all this somewhere outside scripture, right? So maybe if you need to be motivated, you will turn to a TED Talk on uh, you know, YouTube instead of opening your scripture. And yeah, all kinds of examples you can think of where, but I don't know how people without scripture function in life. I don't know. I, I just don't, I haven't never experienced that. I grew up in a Christian home and read scripture all my life. I don't know how you function in life without scripture. I don't know. I mean, people do it evidently. I mean, people, people we work with and live with do it, but I, I just don't know how you do it. I just, it boggles me. Any others? So I was thinking about the uh, the warning one kind of hit me. So, uh, the, you know, scripture, God God knows us better than we know ourselves, and He provides us warnings in life. I was thinking about an uh, incident with my father many years ago. So uh, it really came home to me reading that section. So I uh, I grew up here in Washington. My father was stationed up at Whidbey, but uh, we spent a couple years back in Rhode Island. He was at the, on the staff at the Naval War College in Newport, which is a beautiful location if you've ever been there. But um, so I was in the band there. I played in the abandoned of my freshman year of high school. On spring break, we'd raise money to go down to Orlando to play. So we would go down and play in the morning at the, one of the parks there and spend the rest of the day you know, at Disney World or, or uh, Epcot or whatever it was, which is a pretty cool experience. But So I was getting ready to go on the trip. And, uh, you know, I was, and this is the 80s. So a road trip in the 80s. What do you need? You need a Walkman, right? You need some music. So you need a Walkman. So I got plenty of batteries. I'm a Walkman. I got plenty of batteries. And I, you need some mixtapes, right? Because so you don't want to bring like your whole box of tapes. So you make, make mixtapes of your favorite songs. And I was really into like Chicago back then. So I was taping, you know, dubbing Chicago on my, you know, dual cassette recorder. And my dad sits down and says, I want to talk to you about your trip that's coming up. And he says that, uh, you know, you may, some guys there may, uh, may ask you to smoke stuff or drink stuff that, uh, that you shouldn't be smoking or drinking. And I was thinking, Dad, that's ridiculous. I mean, I, I know these guys. I go to school with them. I, they're, they're not going to do this. This is ridiculous. So we, uh, we go on this bus trip, this horribly long bus trip from Newport all the way down to Orlando. I forgot how many hours it was, but it was, it was horrible. We get there, and we get our room assignments, and uh, I'm rooming with some percussion players, which should have been, you know, CJ, uh, it should have been, uh, you know, it should have clued me off right then that something was not, something was going to go powerfully wrong. But uh, we get in the room, and I get a room assignment, get in the room, and one of the first things one of the kids does is, is pull out a bottle. I forgot what, what it was, you know, rum or bourbon or something. He pulls out a bottle and it starts passing it around, and then uh, finds a secret hiding place in the room to stash it during this week that we're there in Orlando. And it hit me, wow, my dad was right. I mean, I, I never, never went through that stage where I thought my dad was an idiot, but uh, at that point, it's like, wow. He was right. He gave me this warning. He, he knew me. He knew other kids better than I knew myself and other kids. So, I mean, Scripture does that so many times. Scripture is so powerful in, in pointing out, uh, in, in warning us. Um, the other thought of this warning was, uh, you know, as a, as a pilot, you know, my, my glory days as a pilot years ago, uh, we had a flight manual. And in that flight manual, I have all sorts of procedures, normal procedures, emergency procedures. And sprinkled throughout there are these big letters that say warning, you know, with the letters of the big box around it. And the warning basically says that if you don't follow this procedure, 
you could lose your life or lose your aircraft. So there were certain procedures that you had to follow if you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to make sure you preserved your life in aircraft. And sometimes I wish the scripture was like that, right? We could read through and there was like a big flashing warning sign. You know, warning, flee from sexual immorality. Warning, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You know, but I assume that you know, all of us would need different kinds of warnings because we're all different people, have different temptations. But I mean, maybe we need a, uh, you know, a warning study Bible that has warnings throughout there where we can point out these things that people really need to pay attention to in Scripture. But uh, those are my two thoughts as I read this section here about the warnings. Um, let me just briefly summarize them, the few minutes we have remaining here, just to go through. Um, God's Word saves. You know, saving is a, a bigger thing than just justification. God's Word that is with us all the way from the beginning to the end of our salvation, through our sanctification. Um, God's word points, and uh, in this section you see the uh, uh, one of you know, Paul Tripp's sort of you know stomping points. He talks about Overhammer's books that we are we are glory thieves trying to rob God of His glory, and uh, and looking out for our own glory. So Scripture points us away from ourselves to God, and I would say Scripture points us to Christ ultimately because He was He was the one that all Scripture points to. Uh, God's word teaches. Talked about the spectacles there. Uh, God's word rescues. He talks about uh, Scripture being our, our spiritual first responder. When something's going on in your life, you know, the first place you should turn to is Scripture. Um, how often do we turn to other, other sources for advice or, or you know, a way to get out of our problems here? Um, he says that sin doesn't always seem sinful or dangerous to us, which is why we need to be rescued. We, we're, we can be in the middle of, of, uh, of some dark waters and not realize how dangerous things are. God's Word is there to rescue us. Um, talked about God's, uh, God's warning in Scripture. Um, oop, got my pages out of order here. Um, God's Word protects. Uh, this is the idea that uh, God has established boundaries in life. He's given us laws that should guide our life. Um, his law of, is, is given to protect and preserve His people. Um, Jesus obviously you know, restated, reinstituted the moral law in the, Old, in the New Testament. Sermon on the Mount is really an encapsulation of, of the Old Testament law. Jesus gave us the two great commandments, which also summarizes a whole bunch of Old Testament law. Uh, God's word encourages us. Uh, Paul Sharp says that you know, faith isn't natural to us. We don't, we don't naturally have, a, have faith. Uh, God meets us where we are in our struggles and weaknesses, and uh, his, his word encourages us. You don't need to run to the current. This is where I got the idea of the TED Talk. You don't need to run to the current popular motivational speaker to boost your hope. Um, run to the Word. Run to the Bible. Uh, God's word, uh, word confronts. In this section, he talks about the passage in James about, uh, about looking in a mirror and then turning around and forgetting what you look like. Uh, talks about the importance of both hearing and doing the Word. Um, and, and Calvin talks about a lot, about this a lot as well, that scripture as a, as a mirror. Um, your mirror gives us a, a picture of our physical self, as he says, but, but the Bible gives us a, a picture of our, our insides, our, our spiritual self. If you think about this, uh, I mean, as you, as you get older, um, like some of us are, uh, you, you try to avoid looking at yourself in a mirror because you often don't like what you see. And uh, in our society today, uh, if you don't like what we see, and we live in a selfie society. I mean, we all know that. Uh, if you don't like what you see in the mirror or on your selfie, you can uh, you have a filter. You can change the way you look, and 
But you can't change the way you are inside. You, you can't hide that from others or from yourself and uh, for long. And uh, Scripture really reveals that to us. Um, because as you said, sin blinds us and we are often, we are blind to our own blindness. We don't see how blind we are. And we need to place ourselves in front of the mirror of God's Word every single day because it shows us what we really are. Um, God's Word convicts us of, uh, of sin um, the Spirit convicts us through Scripture, and they, they, you know, this process of we're convicted of our sin, we grieve over our sin, and then we confess and repent. This process all, all starts with the Word. Uh, God's Word guides us. Um, His Word is a lamp to our feet and, uh, and a light to our path. Um, I mean, what, what, how amazing Scripture is, like we talked about, I don't know how you function without Scripture in your life. I just don't. Does anybody have experience of how you function without Scripture in your life? I still don't know how you do it. Um, I mean, it's, it's so, so valuable. So the question for us is, uh, if, if we know what Scripture is, the inspired Word of God, the God's Word written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we know that it does all these amazing things in our life, then where is that gap in our lives? Why is there this gap between what we say we believe about Scripture and how we actually handle it, how it functions in our lives? Any idea why we have that gap? Paul. You love suffering? <laughs> okay. Some people enjoy suffering. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> How many of us have been through that phase where we thought we knew it all? Okay, you should all be raising your hand, right? Because we all, we've all been there. We thought we knew it all. The scripture had nothing anymore to teach us. So we, and we get through life and realize that. That's certainly not the case. The scripture has a, has a lot more to teach us. Are there other voices that play a larger factor in our lives, a function that's more of authority in our life than scripture does? The world? Okay. How does the world function as a authority? All right, are there other, other voices speaking into our lives that compete with the voice of Scripture? The devil. The devil does? <laughs> Absolutely. I was thinking about this recently. I read a book uh, quite a while ago about, the, uh, about Bible publishing in colonial America. This is the kind of geeky books I read sometimes. But they were talking about, I mean, the early colonial America, I mean, all they published was Bibles and almanacs. I mean, if you, were, if, you were, if you wanted a book in your home, you had a Bible and you had an almanac. Later on, as people got more prosperous, as the, as the publishing industry increased, you had, uh, you had magazines, you had other books, we had pamphlets. There was so much more reading material that people began reading the Bible less and less. So if that was true in the 1700s, how much more is that true now? I mean, if you think of all the things bombarding us on a daily basis, from the news to social media to websites to, I mean, they're all sorts of you know, profitable, books, profitable books to read, good stuff, but they're not Scripture. And we are constantly bombarded on a daily basis with other stuff to read, and, and Scripture kind of gets overcome or, or filtered by that. And um, Some of you may recall the, uh, uh, Stephen Covey's, Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Remember that? He talks about this, this matrix he has about things that are in our life that are important, and things that are urgent. 
And then, you know, some things in life are, are critically important and they're urgent, demanding our attention right now. Um, some things are not urgent or important. We kind of neglect those. But there's some things in life that are important, but they're not urgent. They're not demanding our attention right now. And those are the things we tend to neglect in our lives. Obvious example is your health. I mean, you can, you can put off eating right and exercising for a while and get away with it, but eventually it catches up with you. So exercising is one of those important things, but not urgent on a day-to-day basis. I think scripture reading is like that, right? You can go through life for quite a while without reading your scripture on a daily basis, um, but it is going to catch up with you eventually. You are gonna, you're going to miss that influence in your life. Um, and I mean, in all, the, all these ways, you know, you're going to miss on guidance and teaching and, and correction, all this stuff that Scripture does in your life. You're going to miss that if you don't partake of it every day. So it's hard for us to remember that, oh, Scripture is important and is urgent. I mean, I've got to be fed daily so I can get this stuff in my life. I think that's another way that uh, we see this gap in our lives between what we say we believe about Scripture and how it actually functions in our lives. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Yeah, that's a really good point, because I know that, uh, you know, I abandoned several years ago the, uh, you know, the daily Bible readings, you have the, you know, Bible reading calendars, because it became for me just like a checklist, like, okay, today I got to sit down and get this scripture marked off, and I'll go through it, and not even hardly pay attention to it. Not that there's anything wrong with reading scripture, but for me it became very unprofitable, because it really was like a check in the box every day. I've, I've been going through scripture a lot more slowly. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, scripture can be work. I mean, you hear all these comments about, uh, well, it takes 70 hours to read through the Bible, and, and, uh, but those are hard 70 hours. It's not like 70 hours in front of the TV. I mean, it's not, TV is mindless. You can sit and watch 70 hours of TV, you know, in the blink of an eye. You binge watch stuff on Netflix, but scripture takes some concentrated effort. I mean, it's really, it can be, it can be some, some work. So. <laughs> it puts things in perspective, right? Because yeah. scripture is, uh, yeah. Yeah, good. All good points. So, Bob. Yeah, absolutely. We are we are people of the head as performed people, aren't we? Uh, and that's a great segue to next week. Next week we're going to look at the doctrine of God, and we're going to explore this difference between uh, between knowing about God and knowing God, um, how that plays out in Scripture. We can have all sorts of factual knowledge, but really not know the living God who reveals Himself in Scripture. So we'll talk about that next week. So, as we wrap up. Uh, this, yeah, powerful chapter. I've, I've, like I said, I should read this constantly to remind myself uh, the role of Scripture should play in my life. We're going to start digging in next week into the doctrine of God. He's got several chapters about different attributes of God and, and different aspects of God's character. So we're going to dig in next week. So for next week, um, read chapter, read chapter th- three, which is the doctrine of God. And this is a fairly short chapter. It's not very long at all. So if you could start, you know, start nibbling away at the next chapter, chapter four. We're going to try to uh, pick up the pace a little bit so we can at least get through chapter eight before we break uh, near the end of May. So we're going to look at the doctrine of God and talk about that fact I and mean, the difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God and how that should affect our lives every day. And we'll probably, uh, we'll probably maybe, you know, read a whole section, read a couple chapters one week or kind of pick the pace up a little bit. So, But uh, for next week, Doctrine of God, um, 
We'll look at God. And once again, he summarized the doctrine of God with the Western Confession. So we'll look at the Confession again, because we've got to look at that. And then uh, we'll start talking about the role that God's doctrine should play in our lives. So, um, all right. We're getting running out of time here. Folks are rolling in for, for worship. So let's, let's pray and finish up here. Father, we are so thankful for this Resurrection Sunday. Um, every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection, but today especially we, we focus on the fact that Christ is risen, that he is reigning, he's exalted at your right hand. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for what that means for our lives, for our salvation. We thank you that he is the word, that he is the, the word you spoke at the beginning. He is the word who reveals you to us, and he's the word that uh, should impact our lives every day. We've, we thank you for these sections about the importance of, of your scripture, the importance that your worship play in our lives. We pray that all of us will make it um, a priority to be in the word, even in the midst of our busyness and everything else going on in life, that we would see the importance and the urgency of, uh, of your scripture, of, of your word, that would play a role in our lives that, uh, that would glorify you. And we ask all this, pray you bless this day of worship as we Come to hear your word preached and sing and pray. And ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.